Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Ever On and On, and is the third and final teaching in our Cave Table Road series. It was taught by Mark Nelson on September 11th, 2022. Thanks for listening. It is good. It's good to be together. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Molly mentioned that I was going to speak, and the imagery she used was they were going to roll me out of the vault, is what she said. And so... If, if you had the same imagery as me, it's like they just wrap me up like a mummy and put me on a dolly and just roll me up. So uh, it is good to be here. Um, thanks for showing up today. Thanks for uh, crowding in here. Uh, I grew up in a, a family of four. And when I was a kid, uh, I, uh, right after dinner usually, uh, we were bored. Uh, this was... Uh, uh, before streaming, uh, before PlayStation, Xbox, even before Atari, believe that or not, yeah. And in those evenings when there was nothing to do, my dad, I loved it when my dad would come in with the keys and say, let's go for a ride. And I was like, all right, let's go. So the four of us would get in the car and, and we would drive mostly country roads. I lived in a little bitty rural. And um, we, would, we would drive and at some point, I would, I would get excited and I'd go, Dad, let's do the hills, do the hills. And I would like demand it. And which meant for us, first of all, I grew up in Indiana, so hill is a relative term here, okay? <laughs> but uh, we would go down Highway 42 and there was about, I don't know, four or five, 12, depending on my childhood memory, uh, these hills right in a row. And so Dad would go about 60. And then when you go over the top, your stomach would jump, right? Yeah, I was like, do the hills, Dad, do the hills. I, I have always loved going for a ride. Uh, we, in my family, uh, we would do that when the kids were little. Hey, let's go for a ride. We always ended up at Dairy Queen. It just always ended up the same way. But even in lockdown during pandemic, I think that's how Monica and I survived was, hey, let's go for a ride. And we would just, I've explored within an hour radius, every little back road in, in this area. I think there's something about going for a ride. And, and I think that, as a child, created this fondness for road trips for me, um, especially a road trip like where you didn't know where you end up going, because that's what going for a ride is. I, you just head out, and you don't know where you're going. But those, my first real road trip, I'm not sure. I think it was 20, 21 years old, and uh, I had no real plan. I had a couple of uh, people that I would stop and see, I thought, somebody in Ohio, someone in Pennsylvania, and I started from, from the west side of, of Indiana. And I had earned $300 and saved it that spring, and it was burning a hole in my pocket. And I said, I got to go someplace. And it was fairly adventurous. I just kind of headed east. I had this uh, little blue uh, Ford EXP two-seater with a sunroof. I was cool, you know, and I'm like, I'm just going to drive. I know that I'm going to see this person and this person, but I'm just going to go. And every time I'd cross a state line, I would stop at a gas station and buy one of those big folding maps because I wanted the biggest maps because I wanted to take all the back roads. I didn't want to go on any of the highways. And so in my, I actually don't remember how long I was gone, but in my time traveling on this road trip, I stopped at uh, Blue Rock Christian Camp somewhere in Ohio. And I got there the day, it was a high school week of camp, church camp, and they, the Board of Health had come that day and condemned all the bathrooms. <laughs> and so 
uh, I got, there was one, there was one uh, toilet and a sink in, in one building, but the kids just were, they had shampoo and soap in the pond, and they were just going, and it was nuts. And uh, at Blue, Blue Rock Christian Camp, I, I broke into the board, it literally boarded up the bathrooms. I broke it open, got in there, took a shower. They deserve to be closed, by the way. And I, I saw a friend there. I drove on to Pennsylvania, and I met up with a friend that I was in school with named Chip Harvey. I think he lived in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. And Chip and I decided, Chip, you want to go with me? Sure, I'll go. So we took off, and we went to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, a Little League World Series, snuck out on the field. We drove up to Cooperstown, New York, Baseball Hall of Fame. And Chip was not a sports fan at all. And so we walk into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and, and we walk in, and there's this huge statue of Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was a very big man. And uh, Chip goes, who's the fat guy? Like that. And I was like, oh, man, it's going to be a really, really long. Chip, just sit there. I'll see you in three hours. Um, we drove on to Boston, saw a Red Sox game there. We, we go, oh, let's go to Connecticut. He had somebody we could stay with. Mostly we just slept on couches and on floors at different places. We, uh, we did uh, New York City. And we go, sure, let's go. And so my, my claim to fame is the first time I'd ever been to the city, fell asleep on the subway, head leaning on someone uh, that I never had met in my life. Um, we drove down to Rhode Island on the beaches, uh, eventually um, got home. But the thing about this trip that made it a little bit unique, I had earned this $300 by, uh, I'd been hired to create displays in bookstores for uh, musicians. So in the Christian bookstore world, okay? So they used to send me all these things, and I would take these things and make designs and stuff. Well, one of the things they sent me was a cardboard cutout life-size of Amy Grant. And some of you may know who that is. It's a singer. Well, this road trip that Chip and I made, I took Amy Grant with me. And, and everywhere we went... <laughs> That's Chip and Amy, and I, I, was, I searched a long time uh, yesterday, uh, and I found a bunch of pictures of, of Chip and Amy, All, Chip and Amy on the beach, Chip and Amy in Boston, <laughs> Chip and Amy here and there. Uh, there's something about road trips when you don't know where you're going to end up. I was as clueless as I could be on that first one. W what is it, and I'd love to get a little feedback here, what is it about road trips that we love so much? Gas station munchies. And I've heard, I've not experienced it yet, that has gone to a whole new level with this whole Bucky's phenomenon. Is that right? It's the superstore of everything? Okay. What do we love about road trips? Freedom. Freedom. Freedom of the road, right? Yeah. What is, you all whispering to each other. You got to share out loud. What do you love about road trips? Playlist. You got to have a certain playlist, right? So. Just ride. Just ride. Adventure. Being in the passenger seat. And, see, I would disagree with you there, but yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Out of state license plates. So that's like a game, right? Okay. What was? Getting lost. Yeah. Just driving. Yeah, it's just that whole idea of going. All right, left or right. I don't know. All right, let's go left. There's that. Yeah. What else do you love about road trips? Yeah, it's, it's the exploration, the adventure of uncovering something. I listened to this uh, podcast, This American Life, 
uh, did one called Road Trips. And it talked about the songs that talk about road trips. Uh, on the Road Again, Willie Nelson, Hit the Road Jack, Born to Run, Life in the Fast Lane, Running on Empty, Highway One Revisited. There was a long list. Talked about the movies, Easy Rider, Thelma and Louise, uh, Lost in America, the books uh, On the Road, Jack Kerouac, which was also a movie, Huck Finn, Journals of Lewis and Clark. That's old school road tripping right there. Um, with so many songs and so many movies and books, it's hard to uh, take just a normal road trip without huge expectations. And the podcast talked about this. They said on here, quote, any road trip is going to feel longer than you think it will, and you'll be tired, and you won't get a meal exactly when you're hungry. You never find a bed exactly when you want to go to sleep, and you'll drive for another two hours before you finally find that bathroom. We all know that going into it but we always buy into the cliche about road trips, how we have a tendency to romanticize road trips. They said that what a road trip stands for, they believe, is hope. Hope that somewhere is better than here. Hope that somewhere on the road I will turn into the person I want to be, that I will turn into the person that I could be, that I am. They believe road trips provide us with some kind of hope, maybe. Today, uh, is the final week of this conversation we've been having at Crossings that we have called Cave, Table, and Road. That phrase is uh, found in, in, in uh, traditional Celtic spirituality, uh, originating, I'm told, in the Dark Ages. And, and it's a way that Celtic monks would try to live out their spiritual life. And it's centered around these three primary spaces. And over the last three weeks, uh, Molly and Caleb, and then myself today, are going to try and unpack this. So the first one was cave, where Molly talked about the cave is where God finds us, uh, sometimes in a place of solitude, sometimes in a place of silence, a place that we ask vulnerable questions, a place where we figure out what it is we're really looking for and longing for. The table is where we find each other. And Caleb talked about this word has said and, and this loving kindness, and around a table that Jesus invites us all to, we find each other. Well, today is the road, and we're calling this where we find our place in this world. This triad of rhythms, this cave, table, road thing, is to this day used to grow spiritual life in a lot of people, and it's becoming a regular part, kind of the vernacular of what we do here at Crossings. Neither is better than the other. Uh, neither is more essential than the other. All three are good. All three are necessary, and there is a sense of wholeness, I think, when all three of those rhythms are present in our lives, because they each express an aspect of human life lived to the full. I feel like if we take one out, we're missing something. Well, when it comes to this idea of the road, uh, Ian Adams writes this. He said, monastics always sense a call to leave the demanding security of the cave and the table to face the demanding insecurity of the open road. The spiritual life may be grounded in silence and seclusion, but it is made real in the everyday life of people wherever they are. And he says the theological term for this is incarnation. Now, incarnation is this radical, shocking idea that John the writer, not John the baptizer, but John the writer, in his old age, wrote in just the absolute stunning first chapter of the Gospel of John. He wrote a lot about this incarnation. One verse in particular is verse 14. And the word became flesh. The word meaning 
God in the flesh, Jesus, God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. He goes on to write, Adams does, and says, reflecting on the life of Jesus, John's conclusion is that God had somehow taken human form in this man, that amazingly Jesus was somehow the life of God uttered into the world resounding across time, recognized by some with ears to hear, but ringing with hope for all. He goes on and says this, As Jesus was encountered and missed or recognized then, so he may be encountered and missed or recognized now. In the faces of the people we meet, and even in ourselves, carriers of the signs of Christ's presence. So look again at the crazy guy on the street. Listen to the young student in the class. Talk with the elderly woman at the bus stop. Hear the excited kids at the playground. Christ may not be far from here. Such is life on the road. Have any of you uh, watched the uh, streaming series, The Chosen? Any of you seen this? Okay, so there's differing opinions on it. And I was really surprised. I I did not buy the hype. Uh, Christian movies uh, are horrible. They're horrible. It's... (laughs) It's fake beards and bathrobes, and I'm supposed to believe that, right? And so, but this is good. <laughs> uh, it's, I haven't watched, we've not watched it all. We got a couple left, but the best part of The Chosen is, is how it portrays Jesus walking the road. Not like the physicality of it, but, but what it meant for him to walk the road. He calls his followers, The Chosen, by the way, I watched the whole first season before I realized the phrase the chosen meant the people that he was inviting into it, like the disciples. It took me a while. And so he calls his followers, and then what you see are these behind-the-scenes, you know, non-scriptural things that, that could have happened, where they're buying food, or they're setting up camp, or they're strategically thinking about how they should move into this crowd. The way that he coaches and prepares his followers, seriously, really, really, I was amazed. It was good. But when you read the Gospels, these four books we have of Jesus, the stories of Jesus we have, I forget how many of those stories were really just life on the road. Jesus said, hey, let's go for a ride. And they did. Jesus did a lot, a lot of walking. You ever seen those old maps? I know you can't see this. But there's these old maps that retrace every step that Jesus took according to Scripture. There was a class that uh, where I went to school where there was a hot seat every day in class, and you would come in, and every person every day had to prepare to sit on that hot seat and retrace every step of Jesus' path, every passage, and recite every reference. That was stupid. So um, <laughs> I'm not, I understand how that could help you a little bit, but, uh, but there's all this talk about all the roads he walked, and there's all the roads that we don't know that he walked as well. The Celtic monks prioritized the road based upon what they saw in Jesus' story. On so many occasions in the gospel, this first century rabbi is recorded as bringing life-changing encounter to the people he meets as he walks on the road. People he may not have otherwise have met in a culture that was overwhelmed, much like today, with a large measure of xenophobia and patriarchy and fear. Story after story, Jesus enters into that, and he invites them to the table. He walks down the road, and he meets these people, and he walks down the road and meets these people. But there comes a time in the story of Jesus where he changes his approach to the road just a bit. 
If you look at the Gospel of Matthew and the flow of the book of Matthew, you have the birth narrative, you have they go to Egypt, you have him come back, his baptism, you have his temptation, you have the call of his followers, you have all of that in the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, just the best of all teachings ever. But then after chapter 7 in verses 8 and 9, he goes on this healing spree as he walked the road. He travels all these different roads and he heals skin disease. Uh, he is someone that's paralyzed, Peter's mother-in-law, uh, two possessed with demons, another paralyzed, a bleeding woman, two blind men, a mute in between. He quiets a storm. This, he's, he does all of this on the road. And so chapters 8 and 9 happen, and chapter 9 gives a summary of what Jesus had just done for two chapters. And it says this, Jesus went through many towns and villages. He taught in their synagogues. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. He healed every disease and sickness. Whenever crowds came to him, he had compassion for them because they were so deeply distraught, malaised, and heartbroken. They seemed to him like lost sheep without a shepherd. Jesus understood what an awesome task was before him. And then in chapter 10, this happens. Jesus called 12 of his followers. There were many. He called 12 and sent them into the ripe fields that were ripe for harvest, he said in chapter 9. He gave them power to kick out the evil spirits and to tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. These are the names of the 12 apostles. I'll come back to that word apostle in a minute. But here's the thing. Up to this point, his followers had been mostly listening to Jesus teach. They were watching him heal. They were watching him do miracles. Here in chapter 10, for the very first time, he doesn't demonstrate his authority. He delegates his authority. By the way, the word apostle does mean sent one. This is the first and only time it's used in Matthew is right there what I just read. The sent ones. He says, you are the sent ones. This is a pretty big moment in the narrative. Up until this moment, the 12, just passengers in the car. They weren't driving. They were just sitting there. So they didn't have to drive. They've been paying attention, maybe, maybe not. In some ways, they're just along for the ride. Every now and then, one of the, you know, Peter yells out, do the hills, do the hills, or something like that, right? <laughs> they've been astonished by what they've seen. But so far, Jesus has always been driving. He has steered them through the towns and villages. He has taken the criticism, etc. And now he says, you know what? I think you should go off and do this by yourselves. Jesus is saying, look, I've shown you. Now you do it. I, I want you to embody it. In a way, I think he's saying, I want you to become incarn incarnated. I want you to become flesh. Jesus called them together and said, let's go for a ride. But here's the keys. You're going to drive. And then he tells them how to walk this road. And I, I've never read this passage as like that it gives ideas of how to walk this road. But I do think that's what this passage is. Verse uh, start of five. Jesus sent his 12 harvest hands out with this charge. Don't begin by traveling to some far off place to convert unbelievers. And don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. He, he basically is telling them, stick to what you know, those of the Jewish faith. Some, some scholars say that if Jesus and his followers had started taking their message to a non-Jewish world at this stage, no self-respecting Jew would have paid him any attention and, and the movement would have been over. He says, 
Guys, let's just start slow. It goes on. Go to the lost, the confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them the kingdom's here. Bring health to the sick, raise the dead, touch the untouchables, kick out the demons. You have been treated generously, so live generously. Don't think you have to put on a fundraising campaign before you start. You don't need a lot of equipment. You are the equipment. And all you need to keep that going is three meals a day. Travel light. When you enter a town or village, don't insist on staying in a luxury inn. Get a modest place with some modest people and be content there until you leave. When you knock on a door, be courteous in your greeting. If they welcome you, be gentle in your conversation. If they don't welcome you, quietly withdraw. Don't make a scene. Shrug your shoulders and be on your way. You can be sure that on judgment day, they'll be mighty sorry. But it's no concern of yours now. They are to leave the place of judgment to God. So I read that passage, and I find myself asking the question, so what is Jesus really teaching here? Like, what, what is a possible reason for Matthew, who wrote this down, to include it in this book? Well, here's part of my conclusion. I think Jesus wants us to know that he is ascending Messiah and that God is ascending God. And Jesus, as the incarnation of God, sent his followers on the road and said, go do this. Take a road trip. It's a Latin phrase we use a lot. It's, it's missio dei, which one translation of that is the sending of God. And I've come to this realization. I believe that there's a lot more missio dei in the book of Matthew that I've realized. Matthew is essentially a text about taking a ride, a text about finding our place on the road. David Bosch, who's a missiologist, he's an author, his take on it is this. He says it was primarily because of this sending vision that Matthew set out to write his gospel. He said it wasn't to compose a life of Jesus, but to provide guidance to a community in crisis. This is way after Jesus when they get this book. Provide guidance to a community in crisis on how it should understand their place in the world. That Matthew wrote it to go, this is our calling, this is our mission. This missional angle on the book of Matthew is see, today seems to be reduced to chapter 28. It's good. Chapter 28 is great. It's how it ends. Go ye therefore into all the world, you know, baptizing, teaching, making disciples. Great. Wonderful. Absolutely. Into all the world. That can, that can be a bit overwhelming. If you go, okay, let's go on the road and we're going to all the world. Ready? Go. It's, it's too much. In Matthew 10, Jesus gives us the idea that, okay, we're all apostles. We're all sent. And we're all just going to walk this road. Let's start slow. And if you keep reading the book of Matthew, so after chapter 10 that we just read, we never, we never learn how they did on the trip. We don't know anything about any trip. No details. We don't know if they were successful. We don't know if they were unsuccessful, which may indicate that the task is not one determined by traditional metrics of success or failure that maybe all we can do is try to embody the way of Jesus in the ways of Jesus, regardless of the results. He says, let God take care of that. That our responsibility is just to be faithful and walk the freaking road. That's it. He tells them, I'm going to review what he told them in chapter 10. He said, don't be so dramatic. That's some good, good words for some of us, right? <laughs> don't be so gone dramatic. Just go to your neighborhood 
Talk about the kingdom being here. Bring health, touch the untouchables, live generously, be courteous and gentle. Just do those simple things. The results of all that, I don't know, that's up to God. Let him sort all that out. Because our responsibility is just to walk the road. Brian McLaren wrote in a book, oh, it's probably 10 years old at least. He said, faith was never intended to be a destination, a status, a holding tank or a warehouse. Instead, it was to be a road. It was to be a path. It was to be a way out of the old and destructive patterns into the new and creative ones. The road of faith is never finished. There is a beautiful land ahead, Terra Nova, waiting to be explored. You are not finished yet. That goes back to the NPR, that there's hope that we can change. You are not finished yet. You are in the making. You have the capacity to learn, mature, think, change, and grow. You also have the freedom to stagnate, regress, constrict, and lose your way. And then this is the title of the book, actually. We make the road by walking. So what kind of road are we making? By how we walk. Caleb and uh, Molly, the last two weeks, uh, back to this cave table road thing, they, they each spent a little time unpacking Micah 6.8. And if you don't know Micah 6.8, it is this verse that he has told you, God has told us, O mortal one, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness. It said, does Hased translate there, Caleb? To love Hased that Caleb talked about last week and to walk humbly with your God. Those are, those are not three virtues. Those are not three things to do. These are three dimensions of a life of faith. In a life that follows the heart of God, these things will be present. Each of them will depend on the other two to be reinforced. And if you look at cave, table, and road, you see how that plays out, right? It's a different order. But walk humbly with your God is a little cave thing about God drawing close. The, the uh, love kindness, again, has said, it's the table. And then the road is act justly, do justice. Mike is saying, God says these are three dimensions of a life of faith. All three of these. The road is where we do justice. Now, definition of justice, I get it. All kinds of different ones. Here's mine. I, I, think, I think in this case, it's the right one. I think justice is taking what is broken and putting it back together. I, I think it's unjust when something gets broken and messed up and, 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 and tainted and dark, but I think it's justice when it's repaired. When it's back the way it was intended to be, to, intended to be that's just, that's right. Sometimes we have a tendency to make the road about huge and grand gestures of justice. We must do this so everybody can see. I get it. I think doing justice on the road is just doing the next right thing. Just, just the next right thing, that's all. And I thought about this, and, and in Matthew it says, just, just do, start with your neighborhood. And I thought, what's the last week been for me in trying to walk this road and just do the next right thing? Well, doing justice for me, acting justly, has been sitting with my neighbor, Terry, as he dies from cancer, who, um, he's just withering away, you know? And for us to sit in his bedroom 
for us to sit with him as he's on a wheelchair on his porch, I think that's doing justice. 50 feet, 10 feet from our house, a new baby is born, Andy Jane, in the last week. So 10 feet away is new life. 100 feet away is death creeping in. I think it's holding a newborn and setting with those dying. I think doing justice <laughs> is chasing the dogs out of the chicken pen next door because they had chickens and they were playing with them like a rag doll. I gave some justice chickens. I'm right. I, I think doing the next right thing is caring about my neighbors enough to notice when a package is delivered that I either let them know or I go pick it up so it doesn't get taken from their stew. I think doing the next right thing, I never understood why in a neighborhood everybody's got their own fancy lawnmower. What the heck are we thinking? I think I have a riding lawnmower. It's, it's the neighborhood lawnmower. Anybody can, you can come and use it. You got to get it, but you can come and use it. And you know what doing the next right thing is? It's when that neighbor has a baby and doesn't have time to mow his grass, you mow that grass for him. That, that's justice. And we go, no, justice is, I get it. Justice is also marching, protesting, uh, changing the systems, figuring out who's pushing the people in the river before they get pushed in. That's all justice too. It absolutely is. But I think in Matthew 10, Jesus is saying, look, just do the next right thing. Stop being so dramatic. Just be in your neighborhood. Talk about a different kind of kingdom. Live a different kind of kingdom. Bring health. Touch the untouchables. Live generously. Be courteous and gentle. Just, just do the next right thing on the road. In The Lord of the Rings, um, Bilbo Baggins sings a song, and it's called The Road Goes Ever On. I have no idea how it goes, so I wouldn't sing it anyway, but this is the lyrics to it. And I think it's a little bit of an anthem for us today. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Not far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where my pass and errands meet. And whither then, I cannot say. Whither means where. Where next, I cannot say. That's always the best part of the road trip for me, when you don't know what's coming next. But you just know, you, you just go another mile, you just do the next right thing, and, and you try not to be so dramatic. Try to, try to love the unlovables. You try to be gentle and kind and generous. You bring healing and hope to the world. You know, I'm, I'm interested to know, as this cave table road thing winds down, um, we obviously need a balance of the three. We've talked about that each week. We most likely don't have that balance, each of us. We probably are better at this and less at this. I'm interested to know, and I'd, I'd really love to see a show of hands. I want to know which comes easiest and which comes hardest for you. So when you think about the cave where God finds us, how many for you is that that's the easiest of these three for you? A few? How many the cave is the hardest? Okay. How about the table? How many for you that's the easiest? I know who's not voting, so if you're not raising your hand, I'm going to come get you. 
How many of the table is the hardest? Introverts, right? Are we just what we're talking about? How about the road? How many for you, that's, that's the easiest? How many for you, the road is the hardest? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, I don't know if you notice Caleb, it's pretty evenly divided there. Um, we want to be a community that takes seriously its call to both seek God, love each other well, and be engaged with the wider world. So this cave table road thing should be on a loop in our lives. Again and again, ever on and on, like Bilbo said, ever on and on and on. You just don't do a cable cave for a little while and then you're done, and then table, and you marked all three off, go, what's next? No, this is on a loop. We do things in our lives. We have rhythms like common meal in our lives because they become embedded. They become flesh in us. So you know that song that um, we sang it the first week. So there's a song that we sing. It's called, what is that called? Like Incense, Brad? Okay, so someone who took that song, Like Incense? Hill song, okay. So... They took that song like incense and they added a little chorus to it that was written by Rich Mullins and Beaker. It's, oh God, you are my God. Do you know that? And I will ever praise you. So they added that to that song. And we sang it the first week, that we, the cave week. And I go, oh man, that's a perfect, that, 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 that like really fits with this whole cave table road thing. Because I, I think it's an anthem a little bit. Because you've got this, I will ever praise you. You've got, you lead me. I walk in your ways, walking on the road. And I, I think that type of thinking should be embedded deep within us. Well, the fascinating thing is that song has such a, I don't know, impact with my family. Um, my parents love to tell the story of, of my little boy, Michael, who just turned 33 this week. But when he was two or three years old, they were down here in Knoxville and they had him in a shopping cart and they were pushing him around big lots. And he was sitting there, and they said just out of the blue, he just tipped back his head and started going, oh, God, you are my God, and just sang it as loud as he could as they walked all through big lots. And I was like, okay, that was kind of embedded to him. That's cool. Well, two weeks ago, our, our daughter, uh, Megan, who's uh, 26, told us that she was at a, uh, she she got an audition for this show in, in Massachusetts and all this kind of stuff, and she, she got it. But then she had to go, and it was dancing, and it was singing and all this. And uh, so she did her dancing so they could see where to put her in the show. And then they said, well, we need you to prepare a number and sing it. So she prepared a number, some Broadway thing, and sang it. And they go, well, we're still not sure in the, your vocal range. Uh, could you just sing us something? And uh, she goes, okay, um, they go, you can sing anything, any Broadway. It doesn't even have to be Broadway, just sing us. And she said, Dad, it was the weirdest thing. She goes, I went, I went completely blank. And they just kept going, seriously, you can sing any song you've ever heard <laughs> on Disney, anything. And she goes, Dad, I've never experienced anything like that. My brain just went, I froze. And they go, you've you got to sing us something. And she finally goes, oh, God, you are my, I'm like, what in the world? Where did that come from? because it was something that was deeply embedded in her. She had done, not as a routine, not as because you have to, but because you know when you take that deep within you, 
it kind of sticks with you and it changes you. Common meal, we take the bread and the cup, right? We, we take a piece of this bread and we say, this is the body of Christ. And we take it, we dip it in the juice and, and we receive it. And we do it every week in our community. If you're new to us, this is something we do all the time. I would love for this to become impulsive, reflexive, like a child, so that when we take this, it becomes embedded in us so that when, when we're walking our neighborhoods and when we're walking the road, it becomes an impulse. It becomes a re reflex to say, and I will follow him all my days. I remember what happened. I celebrate it. I mourn it. And I make it a part of who I am. That's why we take this meal and why we invite you today. I'm going to say a prayer. And then we're going to invite you to come to be served the bread and the cup. There's gluten-free here if you, if you need that. But what we want you to do is come to embed this in you so that we might take it with us as we walk this road together. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's this vision that these monks have given us to think about how you love us, how we love each other, and how we are to walk in that way. And it's with that vision that we come as a community today to say thank you for what you have done, to thank you for this call that you've given us, this mission you have sent us on, and this road that you have made for us. You have, showed us how, you have shown us how to walk this road. May we follow closely. May we hear you well. May we do justice. May we love mercy. May we walk humbly with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray.